Well, good morning. It is so wonderful to be with you to worship the Lord together and be uh, with our church family um, together and worship. We have had a great blessing the last three Sundays. I'm so grateful for the wonderful ministry of the word that the Lord has brought to us through Jeff and through Jim and through Justin. Those messages were encouraging and edifying and impactful for me. I hope they were for you as well. While we were away, we had a wonderful time visiting relatives on the East Coast. That was the planned part of our absence. And then the unplanned part of our absence was that uh, on the way home, uh, we started to feel a little bit of a scratchy throat. And uh, the day after we got home, we realized we had symptoms of Omicron. And so we're grateful that uh, we had mild symptoms and um, it's good to be out of quarantine and back with you this morning. This morning, we're going to begin a new sermon series. This is what our focus will be on for uh, quite a while here in 2022, and that is the book of James. The book of James had a huge impact on my life as a teenager. Our youth group had uh, decided, a group of us um, had decided to memorize the book of James together, and so it's the the kind of longest portion of scripture that, um, that I've memorized in my life. And what's interesting is I learned it back in, oh, probably my freshman or sophomore year of high school. And, and uh, all these years later, uh, at least major portions of it remain uh, in my mind. It's just had a major impact upon my life. And so as I was thinking about uh, what to preach on next, uh, the Lord led me to the book of James. We're going to be introducing the book this morning. So we're going to be in James chapter 1, verse 1. And, uh, you know, introductions are important. We believe in what we call grammatical historical exegesis or interpreting scripture in light of its original context, its original historical context and the text of scripture. And so we're going to take this week and next to introduce the book. We're going to look at the author. We're going to look at the audience to whom it was written. We'll look at some themes and some other aspects of introduction. And this morning, we're going to be looking primarily at the author of the book. And the author introduces himself in James chapter 1, verse 1, as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad greetings. So we know, of course, that the scripture is God-breathed, so the Holy Spirit is the divine author of scripture, but the human author, the one whom the Spirit moved to write the scripture was James, who introduces himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems straightforward enough. The author is James, but of course then for a Bible student that raises the question, well, which James? Because there are actually four people named James in the New Testament. In first century Israel, the name James was as common as our name Joe was amongst the baby boomers and the name Declan seems to be among Gen Z. Okay, so I was wondering whether some of you would get that, but anyway. James was a popular and common name. Well, why was the name James so popular in Israel? Well, this isn't immediately apparent to us in English because the English pronunciation has, as is often the case in English, been simplified and shortened in the way we pronounce things. But 
If I say the original Greek name, I think you might recognize it and understand why the name was so common. The Greek term here is Jacobus, the name Jacob, if you're hearing the similarity. The reason the name Jacobus was so popular and so common is that it was the name of the great patriarch of Israel, Jacob, the one whom God had renamed Israel. And so many, many parents named their sons Jacobus after the great patriarch Jacob. Well, because that name was so common, as I mentioned, there are four different individuals listed in the New Testament by the name of Jacobus, or in the English pronunciation, James. You have James, the son of Zebedee, who is one of the twelve. Secondly, James, the son of Alphaeus, also nicknamed James the Less, who is also one of the twelve. So two out of the twelve disciples were named James. It's kind of like having two Joes or two Marks. The third individual is James, the father of the other Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, but the faithful disciple named Jude or Judas. And he is identified by the name of his father, whose name was James. And then fourth, we have James, who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. So James, the son of Zebedee, James, the son of Alphaeus, James, the father of Judas, and then James, the half-brother of Jesus. Interestingly, all four of these Jameses are mentioned together in a single passage of Scripture. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, it says, When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And that phrase with his brothers is going to then include James. So here you have all four of the New Testament Jameses mentioned in a single passage. So which one of these four is the author of the book of James? Well, one of them is the father of the faithful disciple Judas, and his name is given in the New Testament simply to distinguish the faithful Judas from Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord. And so that James doesn't really have a role in the New Testament other than to help us distinguish between Judas the faithful disciple and Judas Iscariot who betrayed the Lord. So we can eliminate him as the potential uh, author. We can also rule out James, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Zebedee was one of the 12. He was one of the inner circle of disciples, the three disciples who the Lord spent the most time with, Peter, James, and John. He was John's brother, also a son of Zebedee. We know that James, the son of Zebedee, could not have been the author of the book of James because Acts chapter 12 records that he was martyred by Herod Agrippa I, and that took place in 44 AD, which is too early for him to have been the author of the book of James. The reason why we believe it was too early for him to have been the author is from something we read in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So turn with me to the book of Acts, and we'll get a little bit of the historical background here. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, is going to tell us about a persecution which broke out, beginning with the stoning of Stephen, but then 
the other believers there in Jerusalem were pursued as well. And so Acts chapter 11, verse 19 says, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. This is going to provide, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, this is the audience for the book of James. This is to whom the book was originally written, to those Jewish Christians, the Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ in Jerusalem, who were part of that first church in Jerusalem, who were then scattered by persecution after the stoning of Stephen and were dispersed amongst the nations. James is going to say that he's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He's writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered to other nations as refugees because of this persecution recorded in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Well, how does Acts 11.19 help us to realize that James, the son of Zebedee, can't be the author? Well, it's because down in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read about the martyrdom of James, the son of Zebedee. And that martyrdom, chapter 12, verse 1 says, occurred at about that time. It says, now about that time, Herod, the king, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And this occurs according to verse 1 at about the same time as the persecution referred to back in chapter 11 verse 19. So the persecution comes, the believers in Jerusalem are scattered amongst the nations and James the son of Zebedee is killed. And so we know he cannot be the author of the book then which later on was sent to those Christian refugees in the other nations. Well, that leaves two possible possibilities um, for who could be James, the author of the book of James. That is James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less, who is one of the 12, and then James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, we believe that the author is James, the brother of the Lord, not James, the son of Alphaeus. And one of the main reasons for that is James, the son of Alphaeus, is always identified as either James, the son of Alphaeus, or by his nickname, James the Less or James the Younger. Only the brother of the Lord is simply called James. And next week we'll understand more why he didn't need any description for his name because he was so prominent and so well known. James, the son of Alphaeus, is always identified as such. And so the fact that the book of James just simply says, James, a bondservant of Christ, tells us that We are reading the writing of James, the brother of the Lord. That has been the historic Christian consensus throughout church history. And that conclusion has a ton of supporting evidence. I'll just give you a little bit of it. First of all, the earliest Christian writers all affirm that the Lord's brother wrote this book. And there is compelling evidence for that, not only in uh, ancient church history, but in Scripture itself primarily in Acts chapter 15. If you remember in Acts chapter 15, there was this controversy as Gentiles now were getting saved and being added to the church. There was a question, do they need to follow the Mosaic law, circumcision, and all of the other things from the Old Testament? And so there was a gathering in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council where this question was going to be decided. 
And it clearly says that James, the brother of the Lord, was presiding over that council. And when the decision was made by a plurality of the elders and apostles, James writes a letter announcing that decision to all of the churches. And so we have, in Acts chapter 15, a letter which we know was written by James, the brother of the Lord. And when we compare that letter in Acts chapter 15 with the book of James, it is clear that they are written by the same man. There's remarkable similarities in vocabulary and style between the Greek in that letter and the Greek in the book of James. For example, both of the letters use the word kyrene or greetings, a term which appears in the New Testament only in Acts chapter 15, verse 23, in the letter from James and in James chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, to the tribes scattered abroad, greetings, or kyrene. This is an unusual way of greeting in the New Testament, and only James uses it, with the exception of a Roman official who uses it in Acts chapter 23, verse 26. So of the two uses by Christians in the New Testament of this word kyrene, both are by James showing that they're the same author. There's also a very unique grammatical construction uh, where the word name is used as the subject of the passive form of the word call, and that unusual grammatical construction is found in James 2.7 and in Acts chapter 15, verse 17 in the letter from James. Also the phrase, listen my brothers, occurs in James chapter 2, verse 5, and in Acts chapter 15, verse 13. So we have these two letters, both of which are clearly written by the same person, and that leads to a very clear conclusion that the book of James was written by James, the brother of the Lord. So both the internal evidence to Scripture and then the external evidence from church history both affirm that James, the brother of the Lord, is the James who introduces himself in verse 1 as James a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to spend the rest of our time introducing ourselves, getting acquainted with James, the half-brother of the Lord, the one whom the Holy Spirit moved to give us this portion of Scripture because in his testimony, there's going to be some really practical and encouraging things for us. The most important thing about the biography of James that we need to talk about is the fact that he was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He was one of the younger siblings born to Joseph and Mary after the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now, what I just said would be very hotly disputed by perhaps some of your friends or relatives who are Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. They would hotly dispute that James was the half-brother of Christ because they believe in what is called the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary not only was a virgin when she gave birth to Christ, but that she then remained a virgin throughout her life, the perpetual virginity of Mary. And of course, if Mary remained a virgin all her life, then James could not have been the brother of Christ in their view. But the brother of Christ is exactly what he is called in multiple passages of Scripture. Look, for example, at Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. 
Jesus is ministering and he comes to his own hometown. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now notice that Jesus does not correct what they said about him having brothers and sisters. In fact, he says, no, no. He says, this is an example of how a prophet doesn't have honor in his own hometown and in his own household, affirming that James and Joseph and Simon and Judas were indeed his brothers and that his sisters were living there in that town, his hometown. It's not just this passage where James is called the brother of Christ. Look, for example, at Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Paul is talking about who he interacted with after his conversion um, and after his apostolic call. He says in Galatians 1, verse 18 and 19, he says, Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James the Lord's brother. So here you have the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.19 specifically referring to James as the Lord's brother. Now what do our Catholic friends say in response to this? Because they believe that Jesus couldn't have any brothers because of their belief in what they call the perpetual virginity of Mary. Well, their response would be to say, well, when scripture calls James the brother of the Lord, they're just using the word brother to refer to him as a cousin. That James and the others were actually cousins of Jesus, not his brother. They were the sons and daughters, they say, of Jesus's aunt. And theologians call this the Hieronymian view. It's the primary view of the Catholic Church, that James and the others were cousins, not brothers of the Lord. Now, if you head to the east and you meet uh, someone who is Russian Orthodox or one of the other Eastern Orthodox churches, they'll probably tell you something different. They'll say, well, James was not Christ's brother by by virtue of, of having the same mother of Mary. No, they would say that they believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, but they would say that James... And the others were stepbrothers of Jesus. They believed that Joseph was an old man who had been previously married and had multiple other children with his prior wife. And then after his wife died, he was betrothed to Mary. And that would make James and the others older stepbrothers of Jesus, children of Joseph from a prior marriage. This is called the Epiphanian view, the primary view of the Eastern Orthodox churches. Well, we believe that James and the others were half-brothers of Christ. They are what the scripture calls them, brothers of the Lord. The Protestant view is that after the virgin birth of Jesus, 
Joseph and Mary lived normally together as husband and wife, and they had the other children who are listed in Matthew chapter 13 and in Mark chapter 6. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, or Jude, as well as several daughters. And two of those brothers, those half-brothers of the Lord, become authors of Scripture. James, who writes the book of James, and then Jude, who writes the book of Jude. Well, why do we believe this? And, and before we ask that, maybe we should ask, why is it important? What difference does it make? I want to tell you why I think it makes such an important difference and why I want, I'm spending some time this morning discussing it. First of all, it makes a difference to our understanding and appreciation of the book of James. When we realize that James was the half-brother of the Lord, that he grew up in the same household with Jesus, being raised by the same parents, by Joseph and Mary, it gives us insight into the book. The book of James is filled with allusions to the teaching of Christ, but never direct citations. What they are is they're based upon observations that James had personally as he observed the life of Jesus firsthand. And then he contrasts the way Jesus lived with the way that sinful people live, and he draws those contrasts continually throughout his book. So understanding the relationship of James to Jesus and the fact they grew up in the same household gives us remarkable insight into the content of the book of James. That's why it's important. But secondly, it is important because it makes a difference in our ability to minister to our friends and relatives who are Catholic or Orthodox. They believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, and that is a core aspect of their belief that we should venerate Mary. Now, they will say that veneration does not mean worship, but when you look at how they venerate Mary, it really is worship. So, for example, they pray to her, which means they believe that millions of people can pray to her at the same time. She can be omnipresent, hearing the prayers of millions at once. She must be all-powerful because she can answer or provide answers to those prayers. Many of the things that they do, whether it's kissing statues or lighting candles, are indeed worship of Mary. And part of that idolatrous worship of Mary is based upon their belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary. So if we're going to help our friends and loved ones come out of that false teaching, we need to understand their view and we need to help them to see in scripture why it is incorrect. Third, whether or not James was indeed a half-brother of the Lord makes a difference to our view of marriage. A huge difference in the views of marriage, particularly in regard to the physical relationship in marriage. If, as the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox views presuppose, marital relations are somehow less than holy, then unbiblical ideas and practices such as imposing vows of celibacy upon the clergy result, and as we know through church and even modern history, that has had disastrous results. So the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox views, they arise, first of all, out of 
pagan Greek philosophy, Greek dualism, which considered the spirit to be holy, but the body to be unclean and unholy. And so they began to think, well, wait a minute, if, if, if Mary is the mother of the Lord, then she couldn't have lived a normal married life with Joseph after the birth of Christ. She must have remained a perpetual virgin because of this influence of Greek dualistic thought and that influenced their view of marriage as being something less than holy and that led to them banning the clergy from being married and of course that has not turned out well in many, many lives. So I think it's worth giving some time to going over why we don't believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary and why we don't believe that that dishonors her in any way. And I think there's no more appropriate place to go over this than here in our introduction to James chapter 1, verse 1, where the brother of the Lord introduces himself. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to briefly run over eight reasons why we believe James was the half-brother of Jesus, whose parents were Joseph and Mary, and why we don't believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. First of all, is because the text plainly calls James and the other siblings the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Then there is nothing in the context of those verses which indicate that we shouldn't take that at face value. Secondly, Greek has a specific word for cousin. And that specific word for cousin is used in the New Testament. So if James was a cousin of Jesus... As the Catholic view asserts, why would Matthew and Mark and Paul and Jesus Christ himself use the word brother instead of the word cousin? Third, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 through 25, we read that, quote, Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. The natural sense of that phrase, that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Christ, is that, the, is that after the virgin birth, Joseph and Mary lived normally as husband and wife. He kept her a virgin until after the birth of Christ. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, Luke says that Mary, quote, gave birth to her firstborn son, now, Luke was a physician, so he would have used terminology very precisely. He also knew Mary and the family personally, so he could not have been mistaken. But here, he says that Jesus was Mary's firstborn son. And again, there was another term available to Luke, which would have meant her only son. But instead of using the phrase, her only son, he says, that Jesus was her firstborn son. This clearly has implications that she had other children afterwards. Fifth, whenever the brothers of the Lord appear in the Gospels, they're always with Mary and are portrayed as living in the same household as her. But if, as the Eastern Orthodox, or what's called the Epiphanian view asserts, the siblings were actually Joseph's children from a former marriage, then they would have been older than Jesus. They would have already been married and living in their own households. They would not have been associated with Mary's household. Sixth, if James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude were all 
older sons of Joseph from a former marriage, then they, not Jesus, would have been the legal heirs of the Davidic line. The Gospel of Matthew in particular, as well as the other New Testament books, spend a great deal of time in the genealogy showing that Jesus was the legal heir of the throne of David through his adoptive father, Joseph, and he was a biological descendant of David through the line of Mary. But if, if James and Joseph, Simon and Jude were older sons of Joseph from a former marriage, they, not Jesus, would have been the legal heirs of the throne of David. So this has serious implications as the Gospels reveal. Seventh, the testimony of the earliest Christian writers after the time of the New Testament show that the early church believed that James was the actual brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary. The idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary did not arise until hundreds of years after the time of Christ. And as I mentioned earlier, it did not arrive from Scripture. Rather, it arose from a particular strain of dualistic Greek philosophy that had a low view of marriage. And then it also arose as an attempt to defend the idolatrous worship of Mary that began in the 3rd and 4th centuries and was later codified as official doctrine many centuries later by the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, it is Scripture, not tradition, which is determinative, but I just pause to note that even church tradition does not, the earliest traditions don't support the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox views. So for those eight reasons, as well as some others that we simply don't have time to get into this morning, we believe that after the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, Joseph did as the angel had instructed him to do, and he lived with Mary normally as husband and wife, and they had several sons and daughters. And One of them, probably the one born next after Jesus, was James, the one who wrote the book of James. Why is this significant? I want to share a few things about its significance with you. First of all, I want you to note that James grew up in a godly household with godly parents and with a brother who was God. That's quite the upbringing. He was raised by Joseph and Mary, and his older brother was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is that upbringing which positioned him so well to lay out for us the principles of godliness which we find in the book of James. He had observed godliness firsthand. He had observed godly parents, Joseph and Mary, and he had observed the Son of God all growing up and into his young adult life. James had observed these virtues in the life of Christ firsthand more closely than anyone else, and now he is writing to exhort us to follow that example. So the book of James is not going to teach us just how to be better people. It's going to teach us how to be more like Christ. If you want to know the answer to the question, what would Jesus do in the practical areas of life, then read the book of James. No one knows what Jesus would do in the everyday practical situations of life better than his younger brother James who observed it firsthand. And so James is going to contrast the righteousness that he observed in Jesus Christ with the unrighteousness that he observes even in the churches and he's going to exhort the people 
towards godly change. Well, there's another component of James' life which sheds a lot of light on the themes and purposes of the letter. James knew firsthand what religious hypocrisy and fake faith was like because that was his story for the first 30 years of his life. He knew firsthand what the difference is between a fake and a real follower of God. You see, even though James grew up with the Son of God, raised by such godly parents in such a godly home, and even though he had been surrounded by religion all of his life, he had been an unbeliever at least until the age of 30. He had been a hypocrite. And his book talks about hypocrisy and shows us how to identify it and how to turn from it. James' so-called faith had been a fraud. And truth be told, he had been an unbeliever all growing up and well into his adult life. This was despite being raised knowing firsthand from Joseph what the angel had told him. Knowing firsthand from Mary what the angel had told her. Knowing firsthand all of the events of the birth of Christ. Despite knowing the life of Jesus, seeing it firsthand. And then, when Jesus began his ministry, hearing him teach in their own hometown, in their own synagogue, seeing his miracles firsthand. Despite all of that, James remained an unbeliever, unconverted, lost in his sins, all growing up, all through his teenage years, all into young adulthood, probably at least until the age of 30. How do we know this? Well, James was undoubtedly among the members of the family of Jesus who are recorded in Mark 3 trying to stop Jesus from continuing his ministry. They thought he had gone crazy. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says that they thought he had gone out of his mind. And so it, it says that they came to him to try to take custody of him. They thought he had turned into a lunatic, and they were going to try to come and take custody of him, take this grown man and make him a ward of the family under their control. This is the younger brother trying to take control of the older brother who he thought had gone crazy. We read in John 7, another sad and really tragic event in the life of James. And this event occurs only six months before the crucifixion of Jesus. So this is when James probably would have been at least 30 years old. He was part of the attempt by Jesus' brothers to pressure Christ into going to the Feast of Booths, even though doing so would have put Jesus' life in danger. I want you to look at John chapter 7. This is really remarkable. I mean, to show that just not only the rejection, but the, the mockery and maliciousness that Jesus endured at the hands of his brothers, including James. John 7, verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself 
to the world. Do you hear the mockery, that kind of biting mockery that, that only a, a brother can, those barbs that can be given brother to brother? And we read in verse 5 why they were saying this. It says, for even his brothers, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. This is just six months before the crucifixion. James, still an unbeliever, six months before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Not only an unbeliever, but someone who is with dripping satire is mocking the Lord saying, you want to be known publicly, so go to Jerusalem and show everybody who you are if you are who you really say you are. And notice that what they are suggesting would have put Jesus's life at risk. This is rejection, calloused rejection, and even malicious rejection. Jesus referred to that painful rejection in that verse we already read from Matthew 13 where he says a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household of all the places Jesus could go where he was most dishonored it was in his own hometown in his own household by his own brothers how painful that had to be and how painful and poignant the memory of that had to be to James later on after he came to faith in Christ, remembering what he had said and what he had done, all that he had seen in Christ and the fact that he had still been such a hypocrite despite all of that. So James was a man who knew firsthand by his own life the difference between fake faith and real faith. And as we're gonna see, this is a primary theme of the book of James. He is going to contrast fake, dead, demonic faith with real, living, and saving faith. And he had lived through both. And he's going to make sure we understand it as well. Well, there is one other thing I want to just point out from the life of James. Here's a man raised by godly parents in a godly home with the Son of God who remained an unbeliever throughout childhood, throughout his teenage years, throughout young adulthood, all the way until age 30. What does this tell us? It tells us that even the most godly of homes does not guarantee the conversion of those who live in it. I want to offer some comfort to those of you who have unbelieving family members. Pastorally, I know that many of you blame yourselves for the unbelief of your children. Or you blame yourself for the unbelief of your siblings. You think to yourself, if I had just been a better parent, or a better brother, or a better sister, maybe my loved one would have come to faith instead of rejecting the Lord. To those of you who blame yourselves for the unbelief of your loved ones, I want to remind you that James was raised by Joseph and Mary and yet remained an unbeliever. He lived in the same house with the Son of God and yet remained an unbeliever. Joseph and Mary weren't perfect. They weren't perfect parents. We see some of that imperfection in the Gospels. But they were good and godly parents and yet 
James did not believe. And even if we might try to blame Joseph and Mary for their imperfections, we know that Jesus was perfect, and yet James didn't believe. The life of James illustrates the fact that growing up in a godly family does not guarantee someone will believe. So if you have an unbelieving child or an unbelieving sibling, stop blaming yourself for the unbelief of your relatives. You did not have, you do not have, and you can never have the power to make someone believe. Ultimately, you have influence perhaps, but ultimately they make their own decisions. It's also instructive for those who are raised in Christian families. Having godly parents doesn't make you a Christian. You must come to faith in Christ the way James had to come to faith in Christ himself. I want to comfort those of you who fault yourselves for the unbelief of others. That is their rejection of Christ, and it is not your fault. The life of James, I think, should also encourage you in that regard because of his testimony. 30 years of unbelief, but then the Lord did a work in his heart. And when he got saved, God did some amazing things in and through him, including giving us the book of James. So keep praying, keep loving, keep witnessing to your lost loved ones, even if they don't come to faith year after year after year after year, just like James didn't come to faith year after year after year after year, 30 years, and then the Lord rescued him. God can save the hardest of hearts. For James, that change happened after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. How do we know that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 says that one of the people that Jesus appeared to was James. And James, if you remember what we read from uh, Acts, was there in the upper room with the other believers. So we know he came to faith in Christ sometime between John 7, which is six months before the crucifixion, and when Christ appears to him as recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. You know, I don't know about you, but I was curious, how did, how did it happen? Well, we, we truly can't know for sure, but there is an ancient tradition mentioned by several different sources, which usually indicates that it's based upon reliable memories. There's an ancient tradition that says that after the crucifixion, James began to fast and pray. When Christ was crucified, it left him bewildered. Somehow it got his attention. Finally, after all of this, the crucifixion brings him to the point where he begins to fast and pray and search for answers. And if those accounts are accurate, it would indicate that James, after the crucifixion, began searching for answers. Those ancient accounts go on to say that when Christ appeared to James, which is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, these ancient traditions say that Jesus, when he came to him and spoke to James, said, the first thing he said to him was, was, brother, my brother, eat thy bread, for the Son of Man has risen from the dead. In other words, James had been fasting in bewilderness, and now Jesus appears to him and announces to him that he has risen from the dead and says, now it's time to end your fast, for the resurrection has come. Now, we can't know, of course, if those ancient traditions are accurate, but what we do know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, from inspired scripture, is that Jesus appeared personally to James. And I love that fact. 
because there is no bitterness like the bitterness of brothers who had rejected the other. And even though Jesus was the savior of the whole world, he didn't forget his brother and he didn't forget the unbelief of his brother and he specifically came to his brother, to James, appearing to him personally so that James would be saved. Even though James had rejected him, insulted him by suggesting that he was out of his mind, even though he had tried to take custody of him, even though he had tried to convince him to go to Jerusalem and put his life in danger, even through all of that, all of that muddy and dirty water under the bridge, so to speak, despite all of that, the Lord in compassion and mercy appears to his brother. He reached out to him. And he forgave him. And James was never the same. Next week, we'll talk about the life, what we can know about the life of James after his conversion. But I want us to reflect on his testimony. Rejecting Christ for all those years, thinking he was crazy, thinking he's out of his mind, and then meeting the Lord, the resurrected Christ, face to face and being changed forever. That transformation is what he is writing about in the book of James and what we'll be studying in the months to come. Lord, we are so grateful for the testimony of grace that we see in the life of James, your half-brother. Lord, we thank you for the example of mercy and grace and forgiveness in how you came to him, forgave him. Lord, we thank you for the transformed life that resulted and the incredible contrast that James is gonna help us to see between dead and living faith. Help us to pay heed to the truth you have revealed by your Holy Spirit through his pen. May we take it to heart and may we, like him, be truly transformed, producing fruit in keeping with repentance. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.